I want to talk about um, hope. If we can go to the next slide, please. Um, Our president campaigned on this, and he was no fool. He understood that if there was ever a time in our history that we needed it, it's now. Change. We are ready for a new administration. We're ready for something different because we're struggling. We're having a, uh, we're in an economy right now where every day we see the jobless rate going up. We see people out of work, unemployment claims going up. We are involved in two wars, bring our troops home, stimulate our economy, create jobs, keep us safe from terrorism on our soil restore our reputation around the world, clean up corruption in Washington, and usher in a new era of global peace. Now, I don't know if any one man has the ability to do that, and and I don't believe any of us think that one man can. That is a tall order. But if you're going to campaign when we are dealing with as many issues as we are as a country, the one thing you want to communicate to people is things are going to get But we aren't a patient people, are we? We've lost our stomach for war. and We have enough of our young men and women coming back in boxes on the news. Um, We say enough is enough. How much blood do we have to spill for people who don't even necessarily appreciate the fact that we're there? We thought we were liberators, and we are now called occupiers. And when our paycheck stops coming, again, we begin to wonder, what is, it, what is it that's going to change? What is it that's going to bring about renewed hope? What's going to give me any type of anticipation or excitement about the future? It's interesting, as a nation, we have an abundance of resources. We have a massive, massive defense budget. We have the best equipment to fight wars. We have the best technology. We have the best training available to fight. And yet, why are the majority of our soldiers being killed by homemade, improvised explosive devices. Crude devices, when we have things like, next slide please, we have pilotless drones, predators, that can now be armed with Hellfire missiles, and we can take people out. And we got a guy sitting in a cubicle somewhere in Florida with a joystick flying this thing, because he can see. He's got eyes, and he can look at the enemy, and the enemy can't see us. Unbelievable, but we are still losing troops to bombs being attached to a cell phone. We're Americans. We don't don't expect that to happen. We have developed the best of everything. And why are we still being defeated with such primitive weapons? But here's the issue. We have been fighting in areas and enemies that have been fighting a lot longer than we have. A lot longer. They have been fighting for, well, we'll go back to how many years? In fact, we're going to go back to Zachariah's time. And we're going to see that the areas of the world that we are engaged in conflict, specifically Iraq, have been involved in conflict. They know how to fight because they've been doing it for thousands of years. And as one song says, we didn't start the fire over there. It had always been burning. And some of you who lived in the same era that I have know there's a song by that title. The Reverend Billy Joel. (laughs) If we could spin that up, please, maybe bring a little bit of memory back here. Oh, you can crank that up. That's pathetic. 
that song because he heard a child one day say that we really don't have a lot of, there's not a lot of history in our world or something like that or in our country. And so he decided to go through history and just highlight all the major points. But he has a point. We didn't start this fire. Why are we engaged in battles that had started thousands of years ago, 2,500 years ago to be exact, in the area known as Iraq? Iraq was formerly occupied by the nations of Babylon and Persia. In fact, if we can look at the next slide, please. Saddam Hussein, in order to rally his troops to fight, especially in the Iran-Iraq war, decided that he was going to market himself or promote himself as the resurrection of or the successor to two men. Nebuchadnezzar, the great Babylonian king who destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, and also to Saladin, who, if you know some of your history of the Crusades, was the great Muslim commander during the Second and Third Crusades in the 12th century. What better way to rally your troops than to identify two specific individuals who happen to destroy and occupy Jerusalem? If you hate the Jews, then you're going to point to two men who actually destroyed them and wiped them out and, and, and caused them to go into exile, put them into slavery. And so you see posters of him with Nebuchadnezzar. You see a stamp that was issued on Palestine Day of him and Saladin in the Dome of the Rock behind him. Which brings us to a prophet named Zechariah. The Lord spoke to this man during a time when Israel, specifically Jerusalem, I'm glad you found humor in that. I've had spring break this week, I've had a lot of time on my hands. My students wouldn't have laughed at that, they would just roll their eyes and say, pathetic attempt. So Zechariah was prophesying during a time when Israel had laid in ruins. Jerusalem was in ruins. The temple of Solomon had been destroyed. And so he was coming to bring some hope and encouragement. But like all kingdoms, Babylon's time ended and expired, and a new king took his place under the king, of, king Cyrus of the Persians, and he allowed a remnant of the Jews to return to their homeland. If you look at that map, you see the extent of the Persian Empire, no small accomplishment. So they were returning, but what were they returning to? They were returning to nothing. They were returning to a landfill, basically. The former glory of this great city was no more. So Zechariah becomes the Obama of his day. Hope. I am here. I am the voice of God to you. God is speaking to me, and there's going to be a renewed Israel. There's going to be a new day. God has not left the throne. He is still in control. He is still sovereign, and he is still going to come to be among his people. Yes, you can. That's. He will rise again. Ain't no power on earth can stop him. I love that. Turn to Zechariah chapter 2, if you would. If you should have your finger in there by now. <clears throat> Follow along with me. I don't have the words up here. I, I think this is, I believe you bring your Bibles. I hope you do. 
um, although I believe, George, you've memorized it. So, um. <laughs> Zechariah 2, verses 1 through 5. Then I looked up, and therefore, there before me was a man with a measuring line in his hand. I asked, where are you going? And he answered me, to measure Jerusalem, to find out how wide and how long it is. Then the angel who was speaking to me left, and another angel came to meet him and said to him, Run, tell that young man, Jerusalem will be a city without walls because of the great number of men and livestock in it. And I myself will be a wall of fire around it, declares the Lord, and I will be its glory within. I will be a wall of fire around it. I will be its glory within. It'll no longer be in structures. It'll no longer be in impressive temples. It will be me. I will be the glory of Jerusalem. Can you imagine, in those days, the prophet declaring the word of God that your city would be without walls? And what's the first thing they would think of? No protection. Where is the protection coming from? But they're at peace, according to this. And why? Because Messiah is living among them in a future, perhaps, rebuilt temple. Messiah is living among them. A city without walls. Now, that's impressive. That's the kind of Messiah that I want to anticipate. Did you know that our technology industry did not come up with the phrase firewall? It's a reference to Christ himself. I myself will be a wall around Jerusalem. The original firewall. That's the kind of Messiah the Jews were expecting to show up on the day we celebrate Palm Sunday. Were they disappointed? Because no one would dare attack this city that has been run over, over and over and over again, if Messiah is living there. No way. If the world is involved in a massive game of King of the Hill, guess what piece of real estate is at the top? That little pin right there. Jerusalem has been conquered. Somebody, somebody counted 34 times it has been taken. Back and forth, back and forth. I used to live in northern Virginia, a town called Winchester. It was taken 81 times during the Civil War. Nobody wanted it. <laughs> if you've lived there, you understand. So all eyes are on this tired city. Even today, you can't open your paper without seeing the fact that they are fighting over this real estate. And why not? Jerusalem, just, or the, uh, the energy industry, energy interior secretary announced that they have found a massive underground natural gas vein just a couple of miles off the coast of Haifa. What is it that someday the armies of the world are going to come against Israel for? Pomegranates? <laughs> Bananas? Oil? Gas? In my opinion, the Lord is going to provide them a wealth of resources. But that's not the reason. It has always been fought over ever since um, Isaac and Ishmael. Two nations are in your womb. So here people are asking... The Jews were asking in Zechariah's time, we're asking today, how long can the Jews hold on to this city? Will it be attacked again? Well, it's being attacked every day. How long will the Jews allow the Muslims to control the Temple Mount? The one piece that they still do not have claim to yet. And no wonder one of the common expressions of the Jews is pray for the peace of Jerusalem. The answers to these questions and many more are found in the prophet Zechariah. Jerusalem is mentioned 42 times in this book. In fact, only second to Isaiah in the number of messianic prophecies. And we call it a minor prophet. 
indeed. Not quite. It's interesting how a prophet's message is lost on people when they're living in their own hometown and they're observing the law and they're worshiping together and times are good. And now that they have been as slaves in a country not their own, they're all ears. Seventy years in exile as a slave will do that to your hearing. It will suddenly make you listen. Take a look a little bit further in Zechariah, chapter 7. We're going to start with verse 9. First, excuse me, verse 8. Zechariah 7. Some of you might still be looking for this book. Um, hope you found it. Zechariah 7, verse 8. And the word of the Lord came to Zechariah. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Administer to true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the alien or the poor. In your hearts, do not think evil of each other. But they refused to pay attention. Stubbornly, they turned their backs and stopped up their ears. They made their hearts as hard as flint and wouldn't listen to the law or to the words that the Lord Almighty had sent by his spirit to the earlier prophets. So the Lord Almighty was very angry. When I called, they did not listen. So when they called, I would not listen, says the Lord Almighty. I scattered them with a whirlwind among all the nations where they were strangers. The land was left so desolate behind them that no one could come or go. This is how they made the pleasant land desolate. What are one of the reasons, some of the reasons, that God judged Israel, sent them away for a time? Isn't it interesting that he brings up how they treated the poor, the elderly, the widows, the fatherless, and the foreigners. That sounds very much like Jesus talking about the least of these, doesn't it? Or James, the half-brother of Christ, saying, what is pure and undefiled religion in the sight of the Father? That you care for who? Widows and orphans. Isn't it interesting that one of the reasons why this country, this nation, the apple of God's eye, was taken away, he allowed them to be separated from their homeland, and for some of them to die in exile, was because they had forgotten compassion and mercy. Zechariah chapter 8, if you just go on to the next chapter, verse 1 through 8. Here's where we come into the blessing. Again, the word of the Lord Almighty came to me. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I am very jealous for Zion. I am burning with jealousy for her. This is what the Lord says. I will return to Zion and dwell in Jerusalem. Then Jerusalem will be called the city of truth, and the mountain of the Lord Almighty will be called the holy mountain. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Once again, men and women of ripe old age will sit in the streets of Jerusalem, each with cane in hand because of his age. The city streets will be filled with boys and girls playing there. This is what the Lord Almighty says. It may seem marvelous to the remnant of this people at that time, but will it seem marvelous to me, declares the Lord Almighty. This is what the Lord Almighty says. I will save my people from the countries of the east and the west. I will bring them back to live in Jerusalem, and they will be my people, and I will be faithful and righteous to them as their God. Two images here that strike me. Whether or not... Whatever your position is on the millennial reign of Christ, whether it's literal or spiritual, there is going to be a time, and even if it's a metaphor, where children will be safe to play in the streets again. One of the things that's so difficult for us as we look at images of war is what happens to children? What happens to the innocents, to the non-combatants who get caught in the crossfire, who get hit by shrapnel, 
whose playgrounds are destroyed, who can't go out for fear that they're going to get killed. When I send my daughter out to play, I don't worry about a bomb falling from the sky out of nowhere. And neither do you. There's going to come a day when Jerusalem will, will be filled with the laughter of children playing. You know there is safety then. And you're going to have the elderly who will walk freely. We will enjoy the wisdom of the elderly. We will not see them as, as Hitler used to say, useless eaters. People who just eat and occupy and consume resources, but they are of no value to our society. And we are dangerously close to getting to that point where we have decided who is worth something and who is not. But you know, it's a tough prophecy to envision when you walk back to a landfill that used to be your hometown. When all that you loved was destroyed and there's no temple, and you're certainly not going to let your kids play in that rubble if you're a good parent. Well, next Sunday is Palm Sunday, so let's consider this a pre-Palm message, if you will. (laughs) It's the one Sunday out of the year that we dust off the book of Zechariah and we read the donkey verse. You know the donkey verse? Jesus comes to you, humble, meek, riding a donkey, the foal of a donkey. Okay. Well, let's look at palms for a minute. What, were they, what did they signify? If you were a first century Jew, or anyone in the first century, they were a sign of victory. They were given as accolades by the Caesars to military leaders, those who won campaigns. They were given in the Roman games by emperors to those who demonstrated outstanding athletic performance. So ironic, isn't it, that Jesus arrives in Jerusalem. Before that, he had wept. Don't forget that. I wanted to be like a mother hen that gathered you, but you would not have me. He had already wept over the city. He knew what was about to happen. They call it a triumphal entry. I'm not sure why. It looked triumphant, but the crowd soon dispersed, and a week later they were saying, kill him. But in this case, they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna, save now. Save now. Palm branches, the symbol of victory, the symbol of power, prowess. And here comes Christ on a donkey. If we can put the verse up, Micah. Zechariah 9.9, you're all familiar with this. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See, your king comes to you, righteous and having salvation, gentle and riding on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. Why did they not see it? If If the word of God came through the prophet Zechariah, he predicted that your king would come, not on a white horse, which would recognize military victory, but as on a donkey, which would represent a king who comes in peace, why didn't they see it? Would I have seen it? Would you? He was prophesying that someday this, one, once, this once great city would once again host the greatest guest of all, Messiah himself. So let's prepare for his arrival. Now, here's how people depict this scene. Um, you, you see anything wrong with this? Don't think like people in Littleton. Doesn't it look like Jesus is going to the opening of the International House of Bagels? Doesn't it look like a Swedish artist? Look at the kids. They're white. They're not Middle Eastern. They don't look like me. My family's from the Fertile Crescent. I'm from Armenia. That doesn't look like my ancestors. I would have thought something was wrong in the birth order. There was some kind of mix-up. Cute little scenes. We love it. The artist painted. It's like the glowing Jesus. I love that. He didn't glow. Well, he did when he went up to the mountain, but he's not walking around with a glow. He's not a neon light stick. He just 
I, ugh. Drives me nuts when they show this guy. He was walking, he was coming in, predicted by Zechariah. Everybody's laughing and playing and having a good time. But were they aware of the significance of what just walked through the gates of their city? Well, apparently not. The problem with this scene, because we look at this, and this is why, by, by the way, a lot of men have a hard time following Jesus Christ, because we see him as this gentle, meek man riding on a donkey. And we've totally obliterated the image of him and the balanced image of him in the scriptures of a warrior. And we can't reject either one. We accept both because that's who he is. But let's look at the context of Zechariah. Notice what comes before and after Zechariah 9.9. Before, and I'm not going to read all of this, Zechariah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, it is a prophecy of the conquest of Alexander the Great between 332 and 331 along the western coast of the Mediterranean. He just swept right through. He did not destroy Jerusalem. In fact, he was very kind to them. There was a priest at that time who had a vision. He went out, went out and met Alexander and said, please, we've been praying for you. An amazing scene. This is actually what happened. But Alexander conquers the whole strip of the, east, the western Mediterranean and eastern Palestine. He leaves Jerusalem intact. That's the beginning of this chapter. Then we have the donkey verse. By the way, the only one who knew what was going on when Jesus arrived in Jerusalem on the donkey was the... the Next slide. Next slide. The donkey. He's the only one who was cued in. Look at, what, look at what Isaiah says. An axe knows its owner and a donkey its master's manger, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. He was the only one. Must have been borrowed from Balaam. He knew what was going on. And Jesus said, even if you don't worship me, he said, the rocks will cry out. All that I've created, even the, 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 the lifeless stones, they will recognize and worship me as the king. So verses 1 through 7, the conquest of Alexander the Great. Now, that's what I want Messiah to be like. I want him to be a warrior. Just drives through an area and he just wipes everything out. Powerful, commanding, fierce. Then you have Jesus on the donkey. <laughs> Is that a donkey? No. That's a goat. And then, after verse 9, you have verse 10. Take a look at verse 10. I will take away the chariots from Ephraim and the war horses from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He, Christ, will proclaim peace to the nations. His rule will extend from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. Now, that's a prophecy I can follow. That he is going to be, he is going to be followed, not just as a gentle, meek king riding on a donkey. He is going to protect, and he is going to surround, and he's going to envelop Jerusalem. And he is going to be their king. Israel will be back on the map. And notice what he says. There will be no need for weapons of war. Can you imagine Middle East without weapons? He is going to usher in an era era of peace. And by the way, this era has never been fully realized, which I believe it must be future. And I'm sure most of the Jews are hoping that that's the case. (laughs) So what is the point of all of this? Why do I share this with you? Well, I want to bring a couple of points as I draw to a close here. Number one, 
Old Testament prophecies of Messiah, and you probably, if, you, if you've read enough Old Testament prophets, you get this, that uh, they're both they're dramatic and they're puzzling at the same time. Uh, Zechariah 9 is a perfect example of what I'm talking about here. You have Messiah arriving in Jerusalem as a humble king, sandwiched in the context of Alexander the Great's, the prophecy that's happening 200 years later of his conquest of Palestine, and then the prophecy after the donkey verse of Messiah reigning in a future Jerusalem without walls. He is the firewall. No more weapons. No more walls. You don't need them. You've got Messiah living in there. Nobody's going to touch you. I think this is the same tension that I face when I try to understand the nature and character of God. If Jesus was an action figure, which one would you choose? <laughs> now, I like, though, you want a piece of me, Jesus? I like that one. There are times that I wish he'd show up like that. Then you have the Jesus with the, the action figure with the accessories, the, the five loaves and the two fishes, and, the, and the, the water pots, which he turned water into wine at marriage of Cana. So which one would you choose? If you were honest, you don't have to raise your hands. I'd like you to, but I'm not going to ask you to. Which one would you choose? I guarantee you it's the guy with the bulging muscle. I, you know, come on. I want my Lord to be strong. I want him to be powerful. I want him to make a difference. I want him to show up not on a donkey. I don't take some kid's happy meal and distribute it among the people. I want it to be somebody, you know, it's potency. But that's the tension we're in. Now, I go with the action figure Jesus. Just like this guy. You know who this is? Well, there's a, gave it away. When I was in city government in Kansas, we took some trips to Topeka, and in the state house, Capitol, they had this huge mural right, out this, right outside the Senate chamber. Abolitionist John Brown. You know a little bit about John Brown? This guy had a passion. He was on fire to see the slaves in the South given freedom. And if you notice, if we can go to the next slide, there you go. He's got two things in his hand. On the one side, actually go back, Micah, if you would. Okay, he's got, he's got two things in his hand. On the one hand, he's got the Bible in his left hand, and it's got the, the Alpha and the Omega in it, which is a reference. I believe he's got it open to Revelation, which describes God and Christ as the Alpha and Omega twice. Then he's got in the other hand, he's got the Beecher Bible, which is a rifle. We can go to the next slide now, Micah. The Beecher Rifle was named after Henry Ward Beecher, who was also the brother of Harriet Beecher Stowe, who wrote Uncle Tom's Cabin. And he believed, this, John Brown believed that the Sharps muzzle-load rifle, 52 caliber, was the true agent of moral change. So you've got the Bible in one hand, the Word of God, and you've got the Beecher Bible in the other hand. He used to ship these things with the, with the label Bible on the crate, but they were full of rifles. And he believed that that was the true agent of change. Exactly what we're dealing with with Zechariah. You've got on the one hand, the scriptures describing Christ as meek and mild and gentle. Your king is coming to you and children playing in the streets. Then you've got the other side, that he is coming. And if you go to the next slide, Micah, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. Let's go to the next slide. And look at what his foot's doing. He's got his foot on the neck of a Confederate soldier. And then you look at Revelation chapter 19. From his mouth comes a sharp sword, so with it he may smite down the nations. Does that sound like Zechariah? Mm-hmm. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he treads the winepress of the fierce wrath of God the Almighty. 
And in the background of this mural, you see the tornado on the one hand, and you see the prairie fire on the other, and you see the fire in John Brown's eyes. Now, he was captured at Harper's Ferry, Virginia. He was hung as a uh, war criminal. But he had a passion. He believed that the, that the kingdom of God literally was to be brought in by force. And so he took it upon himself to start a militia. He killed many people in Kansas as well as in Virginia. But that's the kind of person I think we would want Jesus to be in a sense. Not reckless, but simply powerful. But we see Jesus, the Messiah, portrayed as a humble, suffering servant, rejected by his own people, bearing the cross of a man's sin and hung on a tree which is also cursed. And the people of Jesus' time, I believe they had a very difficult time reconciling these two visions of Christ. They rejected, a lot of them, the humble side because they obviously didn't see it when he came. And they opted for the conquering hero. And I struggle with that too. And it just depends on where I'm at in my walk. And I'm sure it's the same with you. If I've been, this week, I've been feeling very lonely, very, very... Afraid, just a nameless fear. I don't know what it is. And I just, I deal with that from time to time. Which Jesus do you think I wanted to show up? The shepherd or the warrior? I wanted the shepherd. I wanted somebody to say, I'm coming to you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to comfort you with my staff. My rod, my staff, they comfort you. I prepare a table for you to share with me. I stand at the door and knock. I want to have a meal with you. I want to enjoy you. I want to rejoice in the fact that you're my son. That's when I want the shepherd Jesus. That's when I want the compassion and the love and the grace and the mercy and the tenderness. But there are times when I'm just angry. And which action figure do you think I reach for? In your face, Jesus. That's the Jesus I want. And we are that way, aren't we? We look at these prophecies and we see all this power and we see all this might. And I have students say this to me all the time at Front Range. Where is the God of the Bible in my life? Where's the God of power and miracles and shows up in some form of a manifestation? Where is that? And I want to say to them, even though I want to listen first and understand exactly what they mean, because I do, he's already done that. It just depends on where we're at in our lives. Which Jesus do we choose? Have we forsaken the Jesus who is power, who is the wall of fire, who is the conquering hero, who treads down the, the, the great wrath of God, the judgment that God will make all things right. Number two, second point. Each one of us waves palm branches in a sense. Save me, save me. We're, all, we're doing that every day. We're saying save me. We're, we want to live with the hope, just like we did with our new president. Let's have change. Let's bring about, I'm, I'm bored with my life. I want there to be a new day. I want there to be something to look forward to and anticipate. I need somebody to come along and say there's hope. So we're waving branches of some type and we're saying, save me from whatever it is we need to be saved from or whatever needs to be fixed. And it doesn't matter if we're a Christian or an atheist because the atheists have their own method of salvation. As you can see from the Humanist Manifesto, there is no deity. We have to save ourselves. By the way, the president of our school sends out various periodicals and, and articles, and he sent me one from our Association of Christian Schools International. And there was a line in there that they did a massive survey, poll, a religious poll. The number of outright atheists has nearly doubled in the United States since 2001, from 900,000 to 1.6 million. We have abandoned any hope that we're, there is salvation besides or outside of ourselves. 
We are a nation that is considering ourselves more spiritual than religious. You ever hear that expression? You have no idea what that means. It has something to do with, I think I can put all the religions in a blender and hit frappe, and whatever comes out is like a religious smoothie. And it goes down easy. There is no judgment or accountability. It's just so much easier to swallow. Oh, my goodness. So each of us has these prom branches. And it's interesting that God is doing something in this country. We go, oh, my goodness, are we in a recession? Are we going to, be, are we going to experience the Great Depression like our grandparents did? But the three M's, I call them, the three things that are symbols of power, hope, and security in our country, the three M's seem to be struggling. That is money, military, and morality. Now, there are other things that I'm just giving a general overview here. But do you sense that we're confused, as more confused than we've ever been? I mean, we've always been confused. We always go, how in the world do we survive another day? But we're struggling with knowing our, 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 the moral compass is just spinning. We don't have a, a, we're not grounded. We don't have an anchor anymore. And we're trying to fix our problems by throwing money. A lot of it. You're not seeing it, neither am I, but we're throwing it. You and I don't get to hit the pinata. I wish we did, but we don't. But it seems like hope hangs from a thread. And so Jesus shows up on a beast of burden, a donkey, and we're tempted to say, is that all you got? I have said that to him so many times. Is that the best you can do? Are you kidding? Do you have backup? Are there more donkeys? Because a lot of donkeys, there might be some potential. I say that to him all the time. Is that it? Why did I come out for a parade? I could have been home. Wasted a perfectly good palm branch. Zechariah reminds us, he says, your king comes to you. Now see, that alone should give me comfort. Yes, I know your city, your church lay in ruins. You live under the threat of foreign invasion, terrorism. You're tired, discouraged, you're afraid. What's the world going to be like when our children are 30 and 40 years of age? So here's what I'm asking for Palm Sunday for myself. And I I ask you to think about this. Lord, save me from a preoccupation with myself. Save me from trusting in things that aren't trustworthy. God is stripping us today of the things that we have tried to find our security in and it all falls Save me from creating you in my image. I don't want the donkey Jesus. I want the Jesus, firewall Jesus. Save me from being blind to who you are. Is he going to have to put us in exile for 70 years to open our ears? I don't know. Help me to understand that you are both powerful and gentle. And that the story is not fully written yet. Amen? And save me from growing impatient when you don't show up the way I was expecting you to. A donkey? Let's pray. Father, I believe I'm standing in the company of fellow strugglers. I know I am. We are struggling, Lord, to redeem ourselves from our false images of you. And forgive us for creating you in our image after our likeness. We have been created after yours. I pray that I will never forsake or or abandon the powerful image of the Savior King, the warrior. But I will never reject the the fact that my Savior is gentle.
and he's humble, and he's compassionate. And uh, although all power is made available to him, he came among his own, even though his own didn't receive him. He humbled himself. He took the attitude of his servant. He did not demand equality with God, but he emptied himself and he humbled himself to the point of death on a cross. And Father, you say, follow me. Humble yourself to the point of dying. Death to self every day. Lord, I pray for my friends here. I thank you for their generous and their kind reception. And I just ask for your blessing upon them, for their pastors, for their leadership, for their church, as they move forward in a culture that has lost its way, that they will be a lighthouse and a beacon of truth. And they will proclaim both a Savior who is gentle and kind and meek. And they will also proclaim a Savior who is powerful and who is full of glory, who will one day dwell in a city with no walls. And we'll give you the praise in advance, Father, because you've given us a great hope. And thank you for the prophet Zechariah. May we never forget the message you brought to us through him. In Jesus' name, amen.